100 years since Gallipoli. New Zealand remembers. A documentary special. On News Talk ZB. According to military tradition, the last post is the bugle call that indicates the end of the day's activities. Two and a half thousand New Zealand men and over 8,000 Australians lay dead on the Gallipoli Peninsula. With deaths across all Allied troops topping 44,000 men and at least twice that number wounded, the failure of the assault on Chanuk Bear in the August offensive signalled the inevitable sunset on the Gallipoli campaign. It was time to admit defeat in spite of the views of General Sir Ian Hamilton, as Dr Damien Fenton of Massey University explains. There's no alternative now but to evacuate. Now, Hamilton had argued against this. He was adamant that evacuation would be an absolute disaster and that they would suffer casualties of at least 50%. And he is effectively replaced by a guy called General Munro, who comes out, takes one look and says, this thing is hopeless, we need to cut our losses and get out, we need to evacuate. Winston Churchill was the original architect of the Gallipoli campaign and had been sacked from the War Cabinet following public outcry at the disastrous landing on April 25. Churchill later wrote dismissively of Munro. He came, he saw, he capitulated. They're still humming and hiring at the War Council in London, so Kitchener himself comes out for a look. Uh, Kitchener, the Secretary of State for War, you know, the guy on the famous poster. Now, Kitchener had originally been a supporter of Churchill's. He had been one of the original supporters of the whole idea of the Dardanelles strategy. When he comes out, he also takes a, a pretty hard look at the place and, to his credit, I suppose, he also comes away with the conclusion that actually the situation is hopeless, it's only going to get worse, so we need to evacuate. And in the end, that's what happens, of course. And the government in London finally agrees, the green light is given. Munro, by this time, has actually been promoted to commander of all British forces in the Mediterranean. Birdwood actually ends up being the final commander of, of the MEF, and it's Birdwood and his staff that organised the plans for the evacuation. After General Hamilton's projection that they would incur 50% casualties as Anzacs retreated from Gallipoli, Field Marshal William Birdwood was meticulous in his planning. To implement the evacuation, the Anzacs undertook a number of deception measures to stop the Ottoman troops from realising that the Allied forces were finally abandoning their hard-won positions. One method involved the men on the front lines maintaining absolute silence for hours on end. Anticipating the Anzac retreat, inquisitive Ottoman troops would venture from their safety to investigate the seemingly abandoned enemy lines. As the curious Turks peered into the Anzac trenches, our boys would stand up and unleash hell. Later, when the evacuations were in fact underway, Ottoman troops dared not investigate the silence of our trenches for fear of being shot to pieces. Perhaps the most famous deception undertaken by the Anzacs was the ingenious invention of the water clock rifles. Basically a tin is attached to a trigger and another tin is arranged above it with water in it and the tin at the top is then punctured so that the water will drip from this tin into the tin connected to the trigger. And when enough water is, is, is in the bottom tin and there's enough weight there, then the trigger is pulled and the rifle fires a shot. So it sounds as if somebody's firing a shot. And a number of these water clock rifle devices were used to give the illusion that there were still men in the trenches just firing odd shots. And it seems to have worked. I mean, one of the great mysteries of the campaign is, is the question as to whether or not the Ottoman Turks knew that we were leaving and let us go, 
you know, many veterans were convinced that the Ottomans must have known what was going on and, and just decided to let them go. Recent scholarship suggests that actually no, it really was a successful operation. The Ottomans knew that we decided to evacuate, but they didn't know exactly when we were going to do it. And they were adamant that if they could catch us in the act of evacuating, then they would attack because it was a great opportunity to annihilate us. I mean, Gallipoli is not in a bubble happening by itself. It's part of a wider war. And the Ottoman army was not going to pass up the opportunity to inflict a massive defeat on the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, hopefully killing or capturing thousands of British, French and Anzac soldiers, given that it was still at war with the British Empire, still at war with France. So this idea that the Ottomans would just magnanimously let our guys walk away just doesn't bear up to the realities of, of the situation at the time. The fact was it was a successful deception operation, the evacuation was a success, and we got away miraculously without losing a man or, or even a, a mule or a horse. Hamilton had predicted 50% casualties. Birdwood proved him wrong and vastly exceeded expectations by not losing a single man. Ironically, the evacuation was the only large-scale military operation that went according to plan for the Allies at Gallipoli. Lest we forget, it's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on Newstalk ZB. Early commemorations of Anzac Day played a vital role in New Zealand for those grieving the heavy toll of World War I, especially those mourning the loss of sons, husbands and fathers at Gallipoli. Dr Felicity Barnes of the University of Auckland has researched the evolution of the Anzac legend. It's fascinating to look at the history of Anzac Day because early Anzac Days were very different beasts from the Anzac Day that we know now. So even in 1915, there's something of a marker of Anzac Day. It's not on the day itself, but when the telegram arrives on the 30th of April, there's a half holiday for government officials. But by 1916, there's an attempt to mark this as a proper commemorative day. And it serves a number of purposes. I mean, number one, for many people who attended these services, early Anzac Days were a time of actual mourning. Bodies weren't returned. Mothers, wives, sisters could use this opportunity to actually mourn the person that they'd lost. And so these early Anzac services had something of a funereal nature to them. Without the bodies of loved ones to bury, the New Zealand public gathered at services around the country to grieve, to remember, and show their solemn respect for lives lost. Anzac Day hasn't always been commemorated in the same way. For example, the dawn service, Uh, wasn't brought in until the late 1930s. We borrowed that from Australia. So early Anzac Day services were held in the afternoon. And here, the stars of the show weren't so much the soldiers. When it came to setting out the stages in town halls, the people who sat on the stages weren't the returned soldiers, although they would probably have a space left for them at the front of the hall. It was about the speakers, the various mayors and reverends and, and other sorts of Uh, grandees. So lots of little services all around the country run by these little municipalities. And in fact, the other thing that's interesting to sort of pick up with the uh, Anzac idea, and that's been quite widely discussed, is Anzac is kind of a secular 
replacement for an irreligious bunch of New Zealanders. So we weren't particularly interested in church going, but Anzac and its services formed a sort of secular role in our society. But actually these early Anzac services had a high religious component in them. And it stands to reason. Gallipoli was a traumatic event. The loss of life was a trauma in New Zealand. So when it came to creating a commemoration for these, there was really no roadmap. You had to fall back on the rituals um, of your society already. And of course, religion provides those. So there were hymns at services. There were speeches which involved religious components. So very strong elements of religiosity in these early Anzac days. There was also, particularly in these, in these early services, a real effort to show that the lives that had been lost had been lost in a good cause. So the idea of a worthy fight was really important. And there was a little bit of disappointment when the first troops didn't go directly to the Western Front to fight the real enemy, the Germans, but seemed to be taken off to a sideshow to fight the Turks, who might not have been considered quite the right sort of foe for us to be tested against. So a lot of the rhetoric around this time is about how the fight was against a worthy foe and how New Zealanders performed very well. The sacrifice was worth it. That had to be the message coming across to people who attended those early services. The sacrifice was worth it. So in that case, you get people like a reverend in Dunedin in his service talking about how important, how worthy this fight was, saying that even though we had been evacuated, the invasion had not succeeded, virtually he claimed that the Gnipoli Peninsula had become British, so we dyed the peninsula red with the blood of our heroes, and that made it virtually a British possession. As vicars, mayors and politicians sought to put language to what had been accomplished on the other side of the globe, they framed the Gallipoli campaign as the ultimate test of war. What had been under scrutiny was the character of the young colony of New Zealand. The willing and noble sacrifice of these young men was conclusive proof that the virtues of their homeland had not been forgotten. On the contrary, the British qualities of valour, resource and tenacity were alive and well in the colonies. As King George VI said, the Australian and New Zealand troops have indeed proved themselves worthy sons of the empire. Commemorating 100 years of the Anzac spirit with Leighton Smith on Newstalk ZB. While the war continued into its second, third and fourth years, Anzac Day became time for recruiting soldiers, drawing on stories of sacrifice at Gallipoli to raise many times that number of men to fight on the Western Front. In a funny way, New Zealand has almost, in terms of their memorial, flipped the war over. More New Zealanders would know about Gallipoli than they would know about where the majority of New Zealanders served, which would be, you know, in France and Belgium. It's not even our deadliest battle, series of battles. Our most deadly day is an, on Passchendaele. So, in a way, New Zealanders have kind of mutated the way they think about the war. This Gallipoli experience has colonised a lot of the New Zealand imagination about World War I. School children are much more likely to be able to tell you about what went on in Gallipoli than they can tell you about what happened on the Western Front. You know, it's a fascinating state of affairs. We've, we've made our own little war 
our own little sideshow that they were worried about, actually the thing that we really recall and remember. Within six months of the end of Gallipoli, the New Zealand division was sent to France and would fight there for another two and a half years and and over 12,000 New Zealanders would die on the Western Front. It would just get worse, really. But even so, Gallipoli was first. Gallipoli is that first shock. And Gallipoli is the experience which makes its mark and which leaves the mark, which is why today we still remember Gallipoli. Uh, Even Passchendaele would be a distant second to Gallipoli, even though we lost more men there. But Gallipoli is the first, and I think it really affects the psyche of the nation And that effect is still with us today. Not only did the Gallipoli campaign forever alter the identity of New Zealand, but after the Great War came to an end, the Ottoman Empire was carved up to become protectorates of the British, French and Greeks. Mustafa Kemal, who had made his name as the young commander of the Ottoman 19th Division on Gallipoli, led the Turks in their War of Independence from 1919. He would later be given the name Ataturk, meaning Father of the Turks, as he established the Republic of Turkey. And certainly, as far as Kemal himself was concerned, Gallipoli is where he makes his name. Gallipoli is where he first comes into prominence as a general, as a commander. And because Gallipoli is really the only decisive victory that the Ottomans enjoy in the entire war, everything else really is just a litany of defeat. Gallipoli is a great victory for the Ottoman army, and by default, Kemal makes it a great victory for the Turks. The other thing about it too is that it's, I suppose, it's a relatively straightforward story, unambiguous story of we're also, we were the invaders and they're defending their homeland as they see it. So in that sense, you know, it it also plays really well into the psyche of, of Turks and it's definitely tied up with Kemal and his role there. And he would argue, but it's also where the Turks... Uh, show their true fighting spirit and show the courage and virtues which will then go on to play out into the war of independence that will follow in a couple of years time. So it's interesting to see how Gallipoli is remembered from the Turkish viewpoint. In 1934, in the same year that Kemal was bestowed the name of Ataturk, he wrote a stirring tribute to his former enemies, the Anzac soldiers killed in Gallipoli. He said, those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives You are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets to us, where they lie side by side now here in this country of ours. You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. We will remember them. It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on Newstalk ZB. The Maori contingent had displayed extraordinary courage, going above and beyond the call of duty on the Gallipoli Peninsula. However, the reputation they had earned on the front line was slow to filter through to broader New Zealand society. Dr Monty Suter of Massey University explains. I think there was high expectation after their performance on Gallipoli, uh, that the respect that they had earned in Gallipoli, they might see that translated into peacetime post-war. But the reality is, is when there's a war on, this is my opinion, you know, everybody uh, applauds the efforts uh, of Māori. 
but it doesn't take long after the war for things to settle back down and life returns to normal and the inequalities that existed before the war continue. For the average European New Zealander, they could pretty much pretend or go about their daily life like they were the only New Zealanders because at this time, Māori have kind of retreated. It's often seen as a period of withdrawal. They're in mainly rural areas, whereas the Pākehā European population is largely in urban settings at this time. So, you know, you could go about your daily life and really not be highly conscious of Māori culture. Unfortunately, because of the huge casualties that the contingents suffered, I mean, there was only 134 of them out of 500 who walked off Gallipoli in December. The rest were down, either sick, had been sent home, wounded or had been killed so that they end up being converted to a pioneer battalion, which, although part of the uh, New Zealand division, doesn't have the same sort of status as an infantry unit. And um, Māori knew that. And when they came home, uh, despite the Gallipoli reputation they had, there were three more years of war after that, and they had served as pioneers. So they were probably not treated as they might have been if they had been frontline troops all the way through the war. As we see with the Second World War, Māori Battalion, they were a frontline infantry unit. Uh, again, they suffer heavy casualties, but they build a really great reputation, which I think leads to more dramatic change than after World War I. As trouble brewed again in Central Europe and Germany elected a charismatic and dangerous new leader, the British Empire braced once more for conflict. On September of 1939, at the outbreak of the Second World War, then Prime Minister Michael Joseph Savage echoed the sentiments of his predecessor, Prime Minister William Massey, who had declared, All we are and all we have is at the disposal of the British government. Savage announced in a radio broadcast, both with gratitude for the past and with confidence in the future, we range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. We are only a small and young nation, but we are one and all a band of brothers, and we march forward with a union of hearts and wills to a common destiny. Stirring words from a Prime Minister who could not have foreseen the war lasting six years, covering half the globe and claiming the lives of over 60 million people. I have lived through over 80 Anzac commemorations. A special memory for me was the 30th Anzac Day in 1945, spent on the southern bank of the Po River, Italy, with the advanced forces of the 2nd New Zealand Division. Our troops were reflecting on the heavy fighting we had experienced and the casualties suffered at the Senio and Guyana rivers. There was no celebration, but all the soldiers were acutely conscious of the significance of the day. New Zealand troops are cheerful and optimistic in battle with a huge sense of patriotism. Because so many of my school friends were war casualties, the most moving Anzac service for me is the one held in the chapel of that school. The names of about 140 battle casualties are read out, followed by the trumpeting of the last post and reveille. They were our classmates, 
sporting heroes and academic achievers and our memories flow freely. We repeat the comforting words, they shall not grow old as we who are left grow old. Age shall not weary them nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning we will remember them. One hundred years since Gallipoli. New Zealand remembers. A documentary special on News Talk ZB. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover. By September of 1945, New Zealand had lost a further 11,900 men to the deadliest military conflict in history. Anzac commemorations saw a marked shift in tone as they were broadened to include those who served in World War II. Anzac Day hasn't always been commemorated with the great fervour that it is commemorated with now. And interestingly enough, one of the great drop-offs in observing um, Anzac Day was directly after World War II. And one of the reasons that's advanced for this is that people had lost the faith that, you know, it was a lest-we-forget scenario, that the war to end all wars had not done what it was supposed to do, that we'd been almost immediately involved in another great war. And so there, there was a sense that the old style of commemorating Anzac, which was about lest we forget and a sense of trying to create a new world, a more peaceful world, that chance had been lost in 1939. And so whether you'd call it disillusionment or not, but there's certainly a decrease in attendance and interest. So the lest we forget idea was not strong at that time. You know, people weren't as convinced by that as they might have been directly after the end of World War I. Disillusionment with Anzac commemorations became widespread. In the course of a generation, the tools of war had advanced so swiftly that one nation now held the power to devastate entire cities at the press of a button. What had all our remembrances accomplished? How pointless it now seemed. In the post-war period, people got very grumpy about Anzac Day, far from venerating it. They used to get cross at it. They didn't like the idea that uh, we had this sort of gloomy, shops closed kind of environment, particularly when they saw soldiers in the RSA who would have been very solemn in the morning and then, you know, in the RSA bar, drinking trading stories with their friends, uh, celebrating their own way. Uh, in the afternoon. So, you know, there was a real call for New Zealand to kind of loosen up around Anzac Day. A lot of New Zealanders did not want to have their half holiday constrained by the solemn and sometimes gloomy commemorations of Anzac. So it would be wrong to see that we've always had the same attitudes around Anzac Day. It hasn't always been this type of sacred moment that it is now. As the world wars faded in our collective memory, and the horrors of battle lost much of their immediacy, the grieving at Anzac Day services diminished further. However, many sons and daughters of returned servicemen became anxious to not let the stories disappear with the passing of the generations, and they encouraged their fathers and grandfathers to recount their war experiences before they were lost forever. The stories of the brutality of war were not always forthcoming, as many of the old soldiers felt that the only people who could understand them were their fellow survivors. My dad's name was Stuart Sproul. He was a young fellow from the South Island, the Torrey Plain. 
He and his mates joined up to uh, fight in World War II. They were all scurrying to sign up and he lied about his age to do so. And they were going away to have an adventure at the time. To them, it seemed like they were going to go away and kick the Germans' backsides, teach them a lesson and come back by Christmas. They had absolutely no idea what they were going into. He was captured in Crete in 1941 and he went to fight there for maybe eight days when they were overrun. He spent four years in a German prisoner of war camp. It was Stalag 18 in northern Germany. They were basically living off potato peelings and potato soup. So they were very neglected and at the end of the war he was a walking skeleton and needed about three or four months of hospitalised recovery in England. He was one of many and they were nervous wrecks as a result of this whole process. He went on subsequently to become an alcoholic, which was not an uncommon pattern. They came back to a country full of people who had no first-hand experience of what war was about. And if there was an issue with my father around his nerves, the therapy at the time was to give him another beer. It wasn't an uncommon approach, and it resulted in an awful lot of guys at the RSA becoming alcoholics. They were heroes, they were wonderful men who'd been through some terrible stuff, but they did not meet an audience when they came home who had any understanding at all of what they had been through. So they spent a lot of time at the RSA with their comrades who understood them, and that was a help and also a poison. Towards the end of his life, my father, who was known as Stewie, once confessed to me that he considered himself to be a coward. I was bewildered, to tell you the truth. I couldn't understand why, and then he told me he thought he was a coward because he had never escaped from the prisoner of war camp to go and fight with his comrades. I considered him to be a hero, but he never considered that of himself. This Anzac Centenary Tribute has been made with help from New Zealand On Air. She's in the army now, a blowin' reveille. Here's the boogie-woogie Company B. In the 70 years since the end of World War II, New Zealand has not seen conflict on the scale that required anywhere near the same involvement and sacrifice of the general public. The biggest combat decision that most of us have had to make is whether to watch the Iraq War unfold on BBC or CNN. Yet still, New Zealand troops have been committed to multiple conflict zones. In the Malaysian emergency of 1949, roughly 1,300 New Zealanders served over a period of 15 years. Three Kiwi soldiers were killed in action. So now it's goodbye Maria, I'm off to Korea. As the arms race heated up and the Cold War tensions escalated, New Zealanders were drawn into the Korean War of 1953. A total of 3,794 New Zealand soldiers served with an additional 1,300 in the Navy deployment. 33 were killed in action and 79 wounded. Goodbye Maria, though I'm off to Korea In my heart you'll always be Between 1964 and 1972, almost 4,000 New Zealanders served in Vietnam. 37 were killed in action and 187 wounded. Me, me, no 
By that stage, modern media communications had irreversibly changed the way that war was understood by the general public. Until then, we at home had been spared the horrors of war by the silence of our parents and grandparents. But now the pictures were in front of us, plastered on magazines, screened repeatedly on our nightly news. With haunting images seared into our psyches, like the young Vietnamese girl running naked, her skin burned by a napalm strike, it's no wonder the voices of protest rose steadily and gained such momentum. Yet still, our armed forces took pride in the Anzac legacy, seeing themselves as doing their duty for the maintenance of democracy, balance and peace. Back at home, though, Anzac commemorations were routinely disrupted by anti-war protesters. Vietnam was the first conflict in which New Zealand did not fight alongside Britain, instead following the loyalties of the Anzus Alliance and joining the United States. That pact caused trouble later, when New Zealand stood up to the US over the ethics of nuclear warfare, leading to Prime Minister David Lange's famous exchange of the Oxford debates. We'd like an answer, sir. And I'm going to give it to you if you hold your breath, just for a moment. <laughs> I could smell the uranium on it as you lean towards the <laughs> Throughout the latter half of the 20th century, New Zealand forces were deployed as peacekeeping troops in Rhodesia, the Middle East, and the former Yugoslavia as well as more recently in East Timor, the Solomon Islands, Iraq, and other scenes of conflict around the globe. Each Anzac Day, we honour all those men and women who have served our country in uniform. Blue smoke goes drifting by Into the deep blue sky When I think of home, I sadly sigh With loving tears in your eyes As we fondly said our last goodbyes And as I sailed away With a longing to stay I promise to be true And to love only Drifting by into the deep blue sky, my memories of home will never die. Lest we forget, it's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB. It seems appropriate that Anzac Day falls deep in autumn, when the leaves are losing their vigour, when the colours are subdued and the colder weather seems to invite contemplation. One leader once remarked, there is a special sadness that accompanies the death of a serviceman. It is odd, in a way, when we honour those who died long ago, in wars far away, for the imagination plays a trick. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise, we see them as grave and grey-haired, 
like the men who march on Anzac Day. But most of them were boys when they died, and they gave up two lives, the one they were living and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country, for us. We owe them a debt we can never repay, and all we can do is remember. Lance Corporal John McPherson Grant from Masterton, aged 26. We salute you. Private James Patrick Brown from Wanganui, aged 33. You will not be forgotten. Private Francis Leonard Richards from Christchurch, aged 20. We honour you today. Private Hoani Namu Tamihana from Pukihina, aged 21. We will remember you. Lance Corporal William Burgess from Napier, aged 20. We thank you for your sacrifice. Trooper Geoffrey Buchanan from Invercargill, aged 19. Your name will not be forgotten. From Invercargill to Kaitaia, from Gisborne to Greymouth, we honour the fallen. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. Ihoa atua, ungaiwi mataura, atafaka unguna. Me aroha noa, kia hua kote pai, kote pai, kia tauto atafai, mana a ki tia mai, aotearoa. God of nations, at thy feet, in the bonds of love we meet, hear our voices, we entreat. God defend our free land. Guard Pacific's triple star from the shafts of strife and war. war. Make her praises heard afar. God defend New Zealand. Men of every creed and race, gather here before before thy thy face, asking thee to bless bless this place. place. God defend our free land. From dissension, envy, hate, and corruption guard our state. Make Make our our country country good and great. God defend New Zealand. Peace, not war, war, shall be our boast. boast. But should foes foes assail our coast, make us then a mighty host. God defend our free land. Lord of battles, in thy might, put our enemies to flight. Let our cause be just and right. God defend New Zealand. Mm-hmm.